0: We have two parables this morning, Uh, and there is a common theme that runs through them, but it's not an obvious one. Um, The the first parable that we um, went through was a parable in in the middle of a series of three parables that Jesus gave, and he was preparing his disciples for the fact that he wasn't going to be there much longer, and that he was going to die on the cross and then be taken from them, but then come back and then go again. And then there was going to be a time of waiting and waiting and waiting until he came back one final time. And so that parable deals with that. And then you've got the other parable, which is a bit of a harsh parable in a way, but it's a harsh parable because it's about a reality. And that harsh parable shows the rich man... Uh, living a life of luxury and then the poor man barely living off of the scraps that falls from his table and he has no consideration or time for him at all and then he dies and then the day of reckoning has come and he sees the result of his life in the fact that he's separated from God and he's in hell and yet Lazarus who was the poor man who had nothing ultimately had everything and that he's in heaven and too late Does the rich man realize and ask for forgiveness and ask for mercy? It's too late. And then he asks for forgiveness and mercy for his family. But God reminds him that the prophets have been there and have said that. And even if somebody was to rise from the dead, with a reference towards the fact that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, and still people wouldn't believe. And we know today that there are people that still don't believe even though Jesus did die and did rise from the dead, people still don't believe. So although it's a parable, there's a, a lot of truth packed within that one. So two parables. One about people waiting but not, not really preparing themselves properly, and then one person living their life and doing whatever he wanted, and then too late realizing that he should have done something that he didn't do. Two underlining things for me come out in that, or one really big one, and that is doubt. I think the virgins began to doubt that the bridegroom would come to the point of where they delayed and to the point of where ultimately they disbelieved, they did nothing to prepare, and then it was too late. And it's the same with the rich man. The rich man lived a life where... I think he doubted the words of the prophets, he delayed in making a decision to do anything about it, to the point of where he didn't believe, and then was found accountable. So this morning we're going to look at doubt, effectively, although I sent a note out saying we're going to look at disbelief and doubt and delay, we're actually going to look at doubt. Doubt. Now, this morning, I chose the first hymn, and the first hymn, you think, well, that's not a particularly great hymn for a family service. It's a bit dark, that one. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful truth in it, and Prabhakar pulled that truth out of it. Uh, it was written by a guy called William Cowper. William Cowper, if you know anything about your hymn writers, was a man who really struggled with depression. He really struggled with doubt. He was a, uh, a person who knew John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and worked with him very, very closely, so much so that they actually put together an amazing hymn book called Only Hymns together. Now, Cowper was gifted um, with being a wonderful poet. And in between his fits of great depression and incredible amount of doubt, and even to the point of where he considered taking his own life, he had amazing glimpses of glory and amazing glimpses of what God could do and who God was. And that hymn there that we sang, the first one, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, is looking at his life, looking at those times when he was really down, and how God was in there, and how God really had got an amazing plan, and that his, his storehouse of abundance blessing that he puts upon us is like an unfathomable mind. I mean, I love the words that he uses. The poetry in that hymn is worth you taking away and just looking at and ruminating on throughout this week. It's a beautiful hymn. So doubt. Um, it's, it's always good if we're going to look at the word doubt to have a look at, well, what does the dictionary say and then what does the Bible say? So let's start with the dictionary. Can anybody tell me, maybe young person, what the word doubt means? And whether the word doubt is a verb, an adjective, a noun, or what is it? So anybody want give, to give me a stab as to what the definition of the word doubt is? And we can go for old ones as well. No one's, everyone's doubting their ability to be able to give me an answer now. Not putting trust in anything. Not so is it a noun or a verb? That sounds like a verb to me. Okay, so it's, a, it's an action or an inaction, maybe <laughs> an anti an anti an verb. I don't think there is such a thing. Or um, well maybe there is. There are only English teachers here. It is both a noun and a verb. Okay, so if it is a verb, it's about feeling uncertain about. I mean, an example would be: I doubt my ability to do a certain job. So it is a verb, but it's also a noun because it's the, it's the word that is given to that feeling. Some doubt has been cast upon the authenticity of this account. So it's a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. So you, you're kind of there, but you're not quite there. Let's do a silent poll. What I mean by a silent poll is I don't want you to put your hands up because you might not feel like, putting your hands up for the two questions I'm going to give you, but you know whether you're putting your hand up or not, okay, your own. So the first question is, from time to time, do you suffer doubt? Okay, I've actually I've seen a couple of uh, nods of heads and a few smiles that say, yeah, I do. Okay, so that's the first one. So yes, from time to time, I think most of us, if not all of us, um, do suffer from doubt. The second one, then, is do some of us struggle from doubt? So not sometimes, but regularly suffer from doubt. This is when you really don't want to move your head, okay? So this is the inside one now. Because I know that some of you do suffer from doubt regularly. So it's, it's not a place where you sit there occasionally and glimpse into and then move on, but you get trapped in this mire of doubt which then takes you down and holds you captive. Now, in the Bible, interestingly, the word doubt is not a common word. In fact, examples of doubt are strewn throughout the pages of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, aren't they? There are great examples where you can look at examples of big events, and you look at the the people or look at the individual and go, they doubted. That's what's going on here. But the Bible doesn't explicitly say they doubted, but they did doubt. In fact, as I say, there are no examples at all of the word doubt being used in the Old Testament at all. Now, it could be the fact that the Hebrew hasn't got as many words in it, and therefore doubt is just not a word that they got around to. In the New Testament, the word doubt does appear. It appears, I've got to have a look at my notes, four times Jesus mentions the word doubt, interestingly enough. Uh, Matthew 14 is one example. And then Matthew and Mark. So you've got Matthew 21 and Mark 11 is the same bit where he's talking about doubt and uh, about moving a mountain of faith, etc. He deals with that. Then in Luke 24, and then the famous one that everybody will think of, if you're thinking about doubt and you're thinking about the Bible, you think of Thomas, poor old Thomas, and that is in John 20 and verse 27. Why do you doubt? So those are the examples. Only three times... In the epistles, so in the letters that come after the Gospels, only three times is, that, is the word doubt used, and there are two different words used for it. Uh, I haven't got them here, so unfortunately there is a limit to what I'm going to tell you this morning regarding the derivation of the word. But there are two key ones. One is in Romans 14 and verse 23, where it says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt Because the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea, blown and tossed like the wind. Now, I guess there are times when we feel a bit like that, when doubts hit us, and we do feel as if we're just being bashed around, and we're just like this wave being blown and tossed around by the, uh, the wind. And then there's this beautiful one right at the end of the Bible in Jude, in Jude 22, where Jude says, Be merciful to those who doubt. You know, there are lots of examples of of doubts where doubt has got a very negative connotation, hasn't it? I suffer from doubt, okay? So I suffer from doubt. And I was concerned about the fact that I suffer from doubt. And I was concerned about the fact, should I tell you that I suffer from doubt? Because you go, well, that really rocks everything that I believe in. Because if you're standing out there and you suffer from doubt, I've got a problem. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So the great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest um, preachers that this land has ever seen, wrote this. And this gave me comfort. Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, have nevertheless been the subject of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. Now that's shocking, isn't it? Austin Fisher said, Faith is not the absence of doubt, faith is the presence of love. Now, doubt is something that I've been sort of dwelling on over the last week, but in a positive way, okay? So I haven't been full of doubt, but I've been going over the words doubt and everything else. And I've, I've got a book at the moment, which is basically, it's, it, it's a book about two pastors communicating with each other. One person who's based in the UK, and then a guy that's based in the States. And the guy in the UK, the pastor, is writing a letter to the guy in the States, and then the guy in the States then writes back to him. And both of those pastors, who have been used mightily by God, both have suffered from doubt. And over time have had to reevaluate what they believe, again and again and again, by coming back to God's word. Let me give you an insight about how my mind works. You might you, you come with me, and um, hopefully it's an all right place to be. Um, we have got a bar of soap. How does this work? And we have a bar of soap at home. Yeah? There's got poppy seeds in it. And the idea of the, uh, the bar of soap with the poppy seeds is that when you wash yourself, it exfoliates. So it gets rid of all the dry skin. And when you get old, you get dry skin. Um, and, and the idea is then that you wash but, of course, when you do that and you're in a bath, what happens with the poppy seeds? The poppy seeds sit at the bottom of the bath. Okay? So I get out of the bath and the poppy seeds are all there in absolute chaos. And then I take the plug out. And then I suddenly notice that all the poppy seeds suddenly are no longer in chaos, but suddenly start forming neat little lines. And then what was chaos... Suddenly there becomes order. And then the devil gets into my head and goes, you know that you Christians, that you say that out of an explosion they couldn't have become order because that isn't how things are. And then I'm looking at the bath and I'm seeing order coming out of chaos and I'm going to myself, oh, is this an example of how we've got it totally wrong that... There is order in chaos, and maybe the evolutionists have got it right, and maybe, uh, and then, that will be so stupid. But the chaos was turning into order, and I was really concerned. This morning, I go out of the bath, the poppy seeds were there, I let the water out, no order appeared, and it was absolute chaos. My mind is now at ease and unrested. The example there, I know you're sitting there looking at me going, you've got a strange mind, Woodhouse. Yes, I have. But the devil will use various angles to get into you and say, well, okay, I'm going to challenge you on this one. I'm going to challenge you on that one. You've heard of this. You've heard of that. That little bit of mistruth there is actually truth. And then he throws a little bit of doubt into you. C.S. Lewis wrote, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do his best for us, we are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Think about that. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do his best for us, but we are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. I wonder sometimes whether we live our lives a little bit like that, with that concern about the if I trust you too much, if I step out a little bit too far, that it might actually start costing me something. And then we start doubting what God wants us to do because we're fearful about where he wants to go with us. The first example of doubt is the first time you actually hear about the devil mentioned in the Bible. Really? Yes, absolutely. Genesis 3, verse 1. Because the devil used his tactic of doubt, of planting that seed of doubt. He says, the devil's talking to Eve here. It says in in Genesis 3, verse 1... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Doubt, planted. Did he really say that? So what's the servant doing here? Pepsi, what's he doing? Making them doubt. Of course he didn't really say that. Oh, well, that's right then. So a little bit of doubt, a little bit of, little move, little, little cut, little snip, moves on. See, the devil is really, really clever. he's really, really subtle, piece by piece by piece, little doubt, little doubt, little doubt, little doubt, and then the divide gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and suddenly a one small thing suddenly it gets added to another thing, gets out to another thing, and suddenly doubt sets in, and doubt can become uncontrolled. However, it is healthy to have doubts really do you just blindly believe everything that you are told or is your faith based upon facts so is your faith based upon the word of god or is it based upon a set of teachings that you've been told that isn't rooted on what god has said and when you examine the things that you built your life upon, suddenly, and you examine them in the light of what the Bible says, suddenly everything starts to drop away. Tom Keller. So uh, us as deacons, uh, myself and Pabaka, when I we was, and Bill as well, we, we did a series with, Tom, with Tim Keller. And I can't remember if it was with Ben or with Billy. It could have been either, because it, it's both from the same kind of um, school. He wrote the following, and bear with me, it's a bit of a long quote, so I'm going to read it, because this is not a memory verse for me. A faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe, as they do, will find themselves defenceless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart sceptic. A person's face can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which could only be discarded after long reflection. So in other words, it is good to go over your doubts, to refine those thoughts, to have those silly poppy seed thought process that I had, to come back to the gospel truth that, yes, God is sovereign, God is in control, God is the creator. So let's skip forward in our Bibles a little bit, and um, we get to Exodus 4. And it's right at the very beginning. Moses has been born, um, he's been brought up in the royal household in Egypt, he's killed the Egyptian, he's fled away, and after 40 years, he's then been encountering God. And wow, he's a brave man, Moses, or foolish, I don't know. Make your own view on this one. And I'll read it to you. Exodus 4, verse 8. So if you want to turn with me, Exodus 4, verse 8. Um, It says, Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. This is the bit where Moses is either um, brave or foolish. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? It is not I, the Lord. Now go, and I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. So first time he interjects and says no, the second time Moses says. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Okay? I wonder if there's any of us here that have had that experience where God has said something to us, and we've gone, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else send me. Don't ask me to talk to those people. Don't ask me to go there. There's someone far better than me. Verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. He shall speak. Um, You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and teach you what to do he will speak to the people for for you and it will be as if i were your mouth and as if you were god to him but take this staff in your hand, so that you can perform the signs with it so moses is doubting doubting that god knows best he sees his own weakness the fact that he's got a stammering tongue he sees all of the reasons why it shouldn't be him But that's the whole point, isn't it? The whole point is that God is going to have the glory because he's chosen somebody who is weak. The same way as he chose Dwayne to do the prayer this morning, even though he's absolutely shattered, and he put him through a terrible experience throughout the night. God alone has the glory. In the end, Moses needs to stop doubting and start trusting. And he does that from this moment onwards. But with the handicap for the rest of his serving life, that Aaron is going to be the voice, not Moses. Another quote. All the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, and even performers. We are secure, not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. And that ultimately is where we need to be. Yes, every single one of us here are sinners. Every single one of us here from doubts from time to time. And there are times when we put on an act when we come to church that everything's okay and everything's fine. And we we're not going to tell everybody that we have our doubts. Because to show people we have our doubts shows weakness. It almost feels as if it's some kind of silent sin. Let's get things in perspective. Now, the children of Israel, let's move on to our next one, um, in Numbers 14. They spent 40 years wandering around as a nation, not being able to go into the Promised Land for one reason and one reason only, and that was that they doubted what God could do and didn't trust him at all. Numbers 14, verse 2, they said, and what a bunch of moaners that they were. They don't come out of the story of Exodus well, do they? Um, They say, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. They, who were slaves only weeks before, beaten, made to work harder and harder and harder with less and less and less, had seen their enemy and seen the plagues, they'd seen the enemy decimated, they'd seen the Red Sea part, they'd gone through it, they'd seen the Red Sea come back over the army that was chasing them. They had seen the God going before them in a fire and in a pillar. They had seen food appear from nowhere. They had seen water coming out of a rock, and yet they say these words, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. What, what, what does God need to do for these people? What does God need to do for us? Numbers 14, 33 to 35. Um, they, they, they don't want to know what God's... They're moaning at God. They continue moaning at God. And there becomes a point when God's sad enough. And God said, your children will be shepherds here for 40 years. So your children will wander around here for 40 years. And they will suffer um, for your unfaithfulness. So they're suffering because of you, guys, okay? And you've got to live with that fact. For the next 40 years, they're going to wander around this in wilderness. You know, the only thing that you didn't like for the last 40 days, you're going to have 40 years of this, all because you didn't believe in what I said. And he also said to every single one of you, he said, and they will meet their end in this wilderness, and here they will die. God doesn't put his punches sometimes. So that is, that is their judgment. This is a result of their judgment. Doubt, which led to dis, to uh, delay, which ultimately led to disbelief. They didn't believe that God was the God. They're a bit like the five virgins, that they should have been ready. They're a bit like the, the rich man. They should have known, but they didn't, because they were dealt in the here and now, and their doubts were bigger than their gods. A really good one here, another quote from someone you've never heard of, but I like the quote, so I'll give it to you. Never doubt in dark what God told you in light. And that is so true, isn't it? When God tells you something, it is in the glare of light, and that we take it away into the darkness of our innermost beings at times, and we dwell upon it in dark places. We shouldn't be there. We need to come back into the light. So the... We're right at the end. we would be pleased to know. So to have doubts is healthy. It means that we've considered what we've heard, we've thought about it, and we've worked it through on what we believe. And we must ensure that we build our faith upon informed, God-based faith and not put our trust misplaced into every word that comes out of someone's mouth because they claim to be a Christian. If it disagrees with what God's word says, then it is wrong. So what can we take from this morning? Number one, and I know that some of us felt ashamed about having doubts, but to have doubts is okay. In fact, it is healthy. The problem is... If we dwell on our doubts, that's not okay. It's not healthy. That's not what we need to do. We need to challenge our doubts. We need to place our trust in the God of the Bible and in his word. And if anything differs from that or deviates from it, we just don't believe it, and we just keep on with what we know that God has told us. Come back to that. Get rid of those doubts, because those doubts will only pull us down. Don't let doubt lead to delay. If God has asked you to do something, don't have doubts about it. Don't delay. Make sure it's what God's saying to you. Make sure that's what God wants you to do, but then do it. Because remember, the devil is so, so clever. Cut by little cut by little cut by little cut, he will chop down your faith. And like the rich man and the five foolish virgins, one day you will find that your faith is gone and time is up. So on an up point, then return to the faith that you had in God, anchor yourself to the cross of Jesus and trust him because he knows what is best for you. Trust the person who created you. Trust trust the person who knows everything about you, even the bits that you don't like about yourself. He knows you, and yet he still loves you. So put your doubts aside, and like Moses did, move forward. And like Moses did again, see what God can do.